And they would have to come to grips with it too, that, that the lost piece that we were looking for was actually the cornerstone, the sacred marriage, the idea that Jesus had a partner. We didn't have a male celibate God and a virgin mother as our model for life. What we actually had was a sacred partnership at the heart of the story. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts, and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Time of the Feminine podcast. This is Shana here, and I'm here with Margaret Starbird. And I'd love to introduce this woman. She has been a pioneer in really seeking and helping us all understand the lost history of the divine feminine in Christianity. So Margaret Starbird's background is she holds a BA and MA degrees from University of Maryland, where she concentrated in literature, medieval studies, and then she went on to go and get her master's. Uh, she was a Fulbright student at Christian Albrecht University in Kiel, Germany, and then she also went to Vanderbilt's Divinity School in Nashville. She's lived and traveled all over Europe, studying the Black Madonna and Mary Magdalene, and she also has been married for 48 years. I believe now it's 54 years. 53, 53. Yes. That's incredible. Five children, nine grandchildren, and you have more now? 11. 11. And she teaches all over the world. And a lot of her work actually helped inform Dan Brown and his work of the Da Vinci Code. So for all of you fans of Dan Brown's work and the Da Vinci Code, Margaret Starbird has some threads in there as well. So thank you so much for being here, Margaret. It's such an honor to get to know you and to interview you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be with you. Yeah. And I also just want to add in here too, that like a lot of her work is really around the divine feminine and the sacred marriage that's in Christianity. So I'd love for you to share, Margaret, about like your early interest in in this, like, how did you come into this work and then really find this passion within yourself to to explore? So the journey begins at birth, and you never really know what your, what your journey is going to look like. And when you look back, you see all these threads that led you there. So when my husband was serving in Vietnam, I had a conversion experience of my own. I'd been Catholic all my life, but you might say I was born again, if, if that makes any sense, uh, while he was away. And I started praying with scripture. And then I started teaching CCD and doing research for those classes that I was teaching. And when I got to West Point, a few years later, my husband's orders brought us there. And I found a prayer group had already been established in the church where I had been baptized as an infant. And they called themselves Emmanuel. They prayed the rosary. They were very devoted to the Divine Mother, to 
the Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they prayed the rosary every day, most of them. Um, there were five women and two men involved in this little prayer group. They'd had an amazing experience. They were part of a, what's called the Life in the Spirit Seminar, which was an early revival, really, for Catholics to get their faith into their living, living it instead of just doing rituals, but living it day to day and hour to hour and knowing that the Spirit is with you and within you all day, every day. And so that when they went to this retreat, on the final night, the priest was going to bless the community and call the Holy Spirit down, invoke the Holy Spirit on the community at the final ritual. And on the day that was to happen, in the evening, they gathered, the, this little group gathered with a bunch of expectations, let's say, of, of this amazing event. And all the power had gone off at West Point, and they didn't have any light. And so when the priest drove into post, he saw, looked around, saw no lights, and he got up to the chapel and he said, well, we, we better cancel this and come back on Monday because obviously you don't have any lights here. And they said, oh no, we're Catholics. We have lots of candles in our church. <laughs> so they invited him in. He was, he was Episcopal actually. And he came into their, into the Catholic chapel, the chapel where I was baptized, that he came into those, uh, to that chapel that night. And he gave us a little homily by candlelight. And my seven friends were sitting there drinking it all in and waiting for the final event. And he said, are you ready now for the invocation of the Holy Spirit? And they said, yes. And they bowed their heads and he raised his hands and he said, come Holy Spirit. And all the lights came on right there at that very moment. And it floored them. And they thought, oh, my gosh, God is speaking to us. This is, this is amazing. So they formed a little prayer group, and they met every week. And I wasn't part of that group at the time. But we arrived um, probably eight months later. My husband's orders brought us to West Point. And the, the, one of the first connections I had with the prayer group was one of, the, one of the women came running up to me, and she said, you're the answer to all our prayers. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. How could I possibly be? And she said, well, we've been praying all summer that someone would show up who would volunteer to teach the high school CCD class, the, the uh, Christian, you know, the confraternity of Christian doctrine, as they call it, is uh, um, studies for, the, for children in the high school. And I had volunteered. I had little kids at home, but I'd always taught older people um, back in my youth when I was teaching college German of all things. So anyway, they, they, uh, la I laughed at them, but I said, yeah, you're right. I did, uh, did volunteer for the job. Well, some of them had children in my class and my, and they took their lesson plans. You know, I would tell them what we were studying, the shroud of Turin and all these things that weren't on the syllabus. And so their parents, I guess, were interested that I was bringing stuff from scripture and from other angles, not just the, the regular class curriculum. And so they invited me to join their prayer group. And they told me the story that one day, early in their life together as a community, one of the women had been praying the rosary in her living room, and the statue of Jesus the Sacred Heart had fallen off a shelf and smashed onto the floor into many pieces. And Jan was devastated and horrified, and she went over to piece it all together. And when she did... She found every piece but one, and there was a huge piece, maybe a couple inches or maybe a one square inch or more around jagged edges, lost, and she couldn't find it anywhere. It was in the foundation. The rock that Jesus was standing on had this big piece lost in the foundation. So her kids tried to help her find it. Nobody 
could find this lost piece. So she took it to the prayer group that night and they prayed over it and meditated on it. And one of the women said, well, I believe God is trying to tell us there's a missing piece in the foundation of Christianity and that he will help us find it. Somehow we're going to be able to get revelation about this missing piece. We just have to stay loyal and faithful to him. So they told me this story, and I, know, I thought, well, that's a nice story, but I, had, I hadn't really thought about it until I read Holy Blood, Holy Grail about maybe eight years later, and it hit me, you know, maybe, maybe this sacred marriage and the idea that Jesus was married and the is, is part of this missing piece. You know, these people that I was part of, the, the little prayer group, was devoted to the Virgin Mary, and they, they prayed and meditated in the feminine way, you know, listening instead of talking all the time. And so they were, they were very precious that way. And, and so, and they had always had a faithfulness to the Virgin Mary. Most of them had been saying rosaries all their lives. They were good Catholic people. And so anyway, I thought, well, maybe this, this Holy Blood, Holy Grail has a point, you know, but I didn't, I didn't want to trust it yet. So I said, I'm going to take these, uh, this book into my living room. Oh, I tried to tell one of my friends about it from the community. And she said, can't be. The church would have told us. She said, you really need to pray hard about that. She was really upset with me. So I took the idea with me that Mary Magdalene and Jesus might have been married. And I went into my living room with my Bible in one hand and Holy Blood, Holy Grail in the other. And I said, Lord, I will burn this book in my heart. But first, I need to know what you want me to know about this book. And to make a long story short, I opened the, my Bible spontaneously, which is something we had been shown to do early on in our prayer group. We would just open and read whatever was on the page. And that would be our, our message for the day. So this day I opened my scripture and I opened to the page with the picture of Jesus, the Sacred Heart, which was the same picture as the woman's statue that had fallen years before in her living room and smashed, right? And on the other side, it was the frontispiece for the New Testament, and it said, New Testament, Revised Edition. And I thought, is that ever weird? And I thought, well, all right, Lord, if the New Testament needs a revision, what is it that needs to be revised? And I opened the scripture again, and I was in the book of Kings, third book of Kings in the, in the Catholic Bible. And it, the page I was on, my thumb was resting on the passage that said, Restore my wife, whom I espoused to me. Oh and that was my marching orders. And I said, okay, it was, it was tough because I, I hadn't expected that. And it was just out of the blue. And I called my friend kind of as an, an emergency status and she didn't want to believe it either. And then later <laughs> she came back to me to get two or three days later. And she said, okay, I've prayed about it now. And this is what happened to me. She said, my husband, you know, her husband is a military engineer like mine. And he wouldn't let her call a plumber, even though they had this um, dampness around the toilet every time they flushed it. And finally, he admitted he couldn't fix, fix it, which is hard for engineers to admit. But he admitted it, and, and Mary was allowed to call the plumber. So the plumber came in, and he found a hairline fracture around the toilet. So he showed it to her. He took the, her old toilet away, put in a new toilet, porcelain, you know, toilet bowl, and he left. And after lunch, my friend went in and flushed the toilet again. And there was, again, dampness around the edge of the toilet. And she said she couldn't believe it. And she hunted around herself and figured out that there was a hairline fracture in the same place as the old one. She said, now I, she said, 
the thing that floored me was that there's only one word written on my toilet. The name of the manufacturer of the toilet seat is church. She said, I now believe everything you said about this flaw, this ancient flaw in the Catholic traditions would be this lost story of the the bride, the lost bride. So she, she was she was horrified at the same time, but she was at least on the same page now. And she said, after the, I mean, it's, this was really uncanny coincidence, if you will, synchronicity, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, she decided that she would be my prayer support and she would tell the community, the rest of the community, and they would have to come to grips with it too, that, that the lost piece that we were looking for was actually the cornerstone, the sacred marriage, the idea that Jesus had a partner. We didn't have a male celibate God and a virgin mother as our model for life. What we actually had was a sacred partnership at the heart of the story. We also have a divine mother, but we have a, a, in Christ, in the case of Christ and Magdalene, that is a, a partnership of equals. And it's, it's like the yin-yang symbol. It's a Anyway, that was the, that's the story. And so I went off, I, I set off on this trip, if you will, journey to do the research that needed to be done. Because at first I didn't even, I, I couldn't believe that this could have been overlooked for 2,000 years. So it had to be deliberate, right? And that was one of my thoughts. Anyway, on the journey, my husband got orders again and we, we left Virginia, which is where I finally ended up reading the, the uh, amazing scriptures that day. And our next assignment was in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, if you don't want to be a heretic in Nashville, Tennessee, I mean, it's bad enough in Virginia, but in Nashville, Tennessee, that's not a good place to be a heretic. So I, when I signed up for um, Vanderbilt Divinity School, I was more or less their token Catholic, I think, that year, for a master's in theological studies. And the first thing I did was go to the library and start researching whatever I could find. And one of the things I found was a wonderful book, Was Jesus Married? It was written by a Protestant clergyman, and he went into a lot of details about that. But what was shocking to me was uh, another event that had to do with the curriculum. I had a class in interpreting the New Testament, I guess it was called, interpreting the New Testament. And I was to pick a passage, any passage from the Gospels, and write a paper. It had to be like a 10 or 12-page paper. So I early on thought, well, I better get started on this. And I sat down with my scripture. I bet you could guess that's what I was going to do. I sat down with my Bible and I said, okay, Lord, show me a passage in the Bible, in the New Testament, that I'm supposed to pick for my research paper, for my class. And I opened my scripture toward the back because I knew where that, I knew that's where the Gospels were. And I opened to Mark 14. And it said, while Jesus was at a banquet at Bethany, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, and she broke the jar and poured the contents on his head. And the apostles, the disciples, were angry at the wasted value of the perfume. And Jesus said, don't be angry. She has done me a favor, and wherever this story is told, it will be told in memory of her. So this is the famous anointing at the banquet at Bethany right before the crucifixion. And of course, I had seen and heard this gospel in the past, but it never really hit me until I received it as a gift that day in my living room, and it was to be the subject of my paper. So I went to the library, 
And I started looking up the anointing and anything I could find about this. First of all, I found out this story is in all four Gospels, and there are very few stories that are in all four Gospels. The birth of Jesus is only in two Gospels. The resurrection is in only three Gospels. So at some point you have to say, well, this is in all four Gospels. This anointing by a woman is in all four Gospels. Three of the Gospels place it in Bethany. One places it far away. Luke's Gospel tries to remove it into a different context. But the other three, two say Bethany, but they don't name the woman. The only woman who names, the, the only Gospel that names the woman who anointed Jesus is the Gospel of John. And he doesn't name her just once. He names her twice. He says, the woman who anointed Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Okay. So he made a point to make sure that we all knew that this was the Mary that anointed Jesus, the sister of Lazarus. And then she doesn't show up at the tomb. The person who carries the ointment at the tomb is Mary Magdalene. So here we have this church trying to tell us that these are two different people. But in the Gospel of John, when the apostles complain about the wasted value of the perfume, he says, let her keep it for the day of my burial. So he is assigning her the role of going to the tomb with the rest of the ointment, whatever the ointment is. In this case, it was uh, precious nard, they call it. And everyone says it's spike nard, but we're not sure about that. Anyway, it's a precious fragrance. And so this is the story. This is my story that I got involved with her because of this paper I had to write. And I realized, you know, God's not going to let go of this. One time I tried to give the whole thing back to God. And the next thing I knew, I was sitting with people who were from France and they were telling me all about the Black Madonna and, and all these different places and, and the fact that um, Mary Magdalene had come and, and as a refugee to France and brought with her the Holy Grail, whatever that was supposed to be. Well, we, I knew from reading Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that the whole Grail legends come out of that myth that Mary Magdalene showed up with the Saint Graal. And the Saint Graal, if you, it's eight letters in French, S-A-N means holy, and G-R-A-A-L is a grail, but what's a grail? And if you divide it differently, if you divide it after four letters, you have S-A-N-G, and then you have R-A-A-L. And that means blood royal. So what that legend really said was that Mary Magdalene brought the blood royal to the coast of France. You don't carry the blood royal around in a jar with a lid. The blood royal flows in the veins of a child. And the mother is the vessel, right? So from all of this, we, put, we piece together all these threads, if you will, and wove it into the story. Okay, so where do we find this in Scripture? Well, in Scripture, Mary Magdalene is mentioned first on seven of eight lists. The only time she's not mentioned first is at the cross, and Virgin Mary is there also. And so they mention the very Virgin Mary first, and then Mary Magdalene. But the rest of the time, she's mentioned as if she were first lady, first in prominence, first in importance in that community. And then the other thing that is really um, significant is the, the numbers of the gematria that's coded into the New Testament. I don't know if you've read my books and know anything about that, but that's the, the other proof, if you will. So anyway, have you another question? I think I've rattled on and on. 
Thank you so much for sharing that, Margaret. When you told the story about your realization through asking about the books and opening to the pages, I got teary. The synchronicities that, that accompanied our whole community, it wasn't just me, but they were getting it too. It was just really mm-hmm. amazing. It was like the mm-hmm. story would not go away. I'm curious about that, the story not going away. And I'm curious about as, as this story unfolded for you, and as your your prayer to understand deepened, what that did for you as a woman? I don't even know how to explain it. I did, I've always lived in my head, if you want to be blunt about it. I have four brothers and a military father, and you can maybe figure this out. But I, I always grew up thinking you had to make straight A's and all those things that are accomplishment and oriented toward success. And so I was sort of surprised that there was another way of looking at things. And I tried hard to to incorporate relationship and eros more and more into my life as I grew into knowledge of that. And at some point, I was praying a rosary for a special intention, and I fell asleep with it. And when I woke up and I rescued the rosary that I'd been sort of rolling around on all night, it had carved itself into pieces of seven instead of 10, which was really weird, except that seven is the number for the Holy Spirit. So I just said, well, maybe it's my calling to make a rosary for Mary Magdalene that's based on sevens, because that's a sacred partnership of three and four, seven. And and then I could make a prayer for Mary Magdalene and we would have a, a second rosary for the lost bride. In addition to the rosary, we pray for the divine mother. So I, had a friend actually make me a rosary like that. And it has seven mysteries of seven prayers, seven, seven um, decades, but they're not decades, septades. <laughs> they have seven septades of seven prayers each. And then I ha- it's actually on my website. If you go to margaretstarbird.net under rosary, you can see the prayer that I made up for it. The prayer was show us the way of the heart instead of mm-hmm. always being involved with other things. We need to find out what compassion is and what real relationship is and connection, all those things that the feminine can teach you, the wisdom of the feminine. So that was the prayer then. And I started praying that off and on over the years since I wrote it with intense, more and more intensity. And then I ended up, I don't know, I, just, I told uh, Lauren this early that my husband had a stroke about six years ago, and so I've been a caregiver now for the last six years. And that's one of the ways you learn about the prayer of the heart is when you're taking mm-hmm. care of somebody who needs you. So mm-hmm. that's my story now. Journey is never complete until it's you know until it's time to go. Just keep learning. Yeah. Maybe not even after it's time to go. Well, that, we don't know. <laughs> we have to count on God knows best on all of that. Uh, I wanted to mention though today. The book about the lost. I know. I know what book you're talking about. In the yes, Dark Places I have of that Wisdom. Book. Yeah. I have the book. It goes back to the ancient times when the shaman used to go into meditation and curl up in a, in a little heap in the temple, and the priests would bring him water and let him incubate. And I, I don't know if they allow women to do it or not, but the idea was that a philosopher was a lover of Sophia. And it was the mm-hmm. Sophia who comes to you in meditation, the mother, the wisdom mm-hmm. embodied in the feminine, usually. So anyway, the Sophia 
um, was was honored in all those ancient times as the wisdom of the, the earth and the mother, the body wisdom, if you will. And then Plato and Aristotle decided that that incubating of the feminine wisdom was first of all unreliable and secondly mm-hmm. took too long. It was tedious and it took too long. So they just couldn't, couldn't be bothered anymore. But the deception is that they didn't change their name. They still called themselves philosophers, which means lovers of Sophia, lovers of Sophia, but they abandoned Sophia. So then the Gnostics have these amazing legends about the the Sophia. It's almost like the prodigal son. She becomes the prodigal daughter and she wanders around on earth and does all these awful, outrageous things and can't find her way home. And finally, in the in the Gnostic tradition, apparently, the father um, sends her brother bridegroom down to rescue her, and that becomes the myth of the fallen Magdalene and Jesus coming to turn her life around. But there's no evidence in Scripture that says that Mag- Mary Magdalene, the brother, the sister of Lazarus, was a sinner. We don't. I mean, it's just really uh, something that clung to her from Luke's gospel. Well, remember, Luke was the disciple of Paul, and Paul never knew Jesus or Mary Magdalene or any of them. He didn't come to Jesus until the, the uh, events on his way to Damascus when he was trying to persecute Christians, and he had that vision that said, why are you persecuting me? And that's when he was converted to the risen Christ, but he had nothing to do with the family and, in fact, was at odds with the family. Margaret, hmm. you are a woman after my own heart. Really? Yes. Well, that's so yes. sweet of you. In so many ways. First of all, I just want to connect with you on the power of the rosary. My ancestors, my female line, has said the rosary for years and years and years. And when I was a little girl, when I still, I I was raised Catholic. When I still felt a connection to the church, it was through the rosary. It was through the Divine Mother. And I would go and I would sneak into the local Catholic church when nobody was there. I didn't like going to church on Sundays, but when nobody was there and I could go to the devotional area for the Virgin Mary and I could feel her power and weep. And there was something that really scared me about the Catholic church. There was a power there, but there was something about her that always called me forward. And then as I got older, I I mortified my mother, actually. At 12 years old, I started paying attention, and I started going through some traumatic things, not fitting in at school, being bullied. And I saw sitting among the pews where so many of my you know, fellow students and their parents, and I had this awakening of actually feeling hypocrisy, like the not the living of the embodiment of the teachings, but some kind of, at, at that level of consciousness, I just felt like everybody was being fake. And I, this audacity in me as a 12-year-old rose up in the middle of church and I said to my mother, this is not my God. And I stormed out, I mortified her. And then I went through this rebellious seeking and I found Wicca, actually. And I explored the goddess and the moon and the nature and this law specifically of threefold, what you put out to the universe, you receive back threefold. And that became a bit of a guiding compass while I went through a really dark period in my life. From se- from 13 to 21, 
I was on a road to destruction. I really, I really did not have any sense of self-worth. And I had this awakening experience that I've shared here on this podcast that I won't go into in depth because people have heard it, but I went to the Amazon rainforest and I was able to be with uh, the indigenous peoples there. And through that, I encountered the Virgin Mary and I encountered her as one aspect of the great mother. And I healed my relationship to Yeshua to Jesus Christ. And I began to pray again. I lost connection with prayer and the rosary became a tool for me, like a mantra of the divine feminine that saved my life. Mm. And the the miracles and the, the page turnings and all the things you're sharing has been my journey of understanding and unfolding into who I am and, and also unpacking the mysteries. And even the Mary Magdalene Rosary, I haven't ever prayed yours, but I have prayed the Mary Magdalene Rosary and very various Mary Magdalene prayers. And for me in particular, I the journey of this like false mm, labeling of her as a prostitute and and not the apostle of apostles and the beloved companion of Jesus has obviously distorted Christianity in such a big way and has contributed to the suppression of the feminine and women. And obviously that's a travesty. Yeah, they wrote her out of the story early on. They didn't want us to know. Mm-hmm. Well, they kept her, but they kept her as, as a fallen woman. I don't know if, if you know my Bride in Exile book. Mary Magdalene, Bride in Exile. Mm-hmm. At the very end, I have an epilogue, which is, who do we say she is? Mm-hmm. And at the end, it says, okay, you could say that she's the apostle to the apostles, but that just puts her on the same status as Peter, and that will not make the flowers grow. It's not, yeah, exactly. not going to bl- help the desert bloom. What you really need is a sacred partnership of the divine. You, we need to be able to envision the divine as male and female in mm-hmm. in a symbiosis and a sacred partnership. And to that I say hallelujah. Yeah. And and I I've often lately thought the the cornerstone that the that the builders rejected is actually the sacred marriage. Mm-hmm. The rest of it they kept, but what they denied was the sacred marriage. Well, it's interesting cuz in doing so, even though there was uh, obviously an agenda there, that is malicious in intent. However, for me in particular, having gone through such a destructive time, doing things, experiencing things with my body, experiencing you were the Sophia. I, I, the, exactly. the prodigal and daughter. I, yeah. And when I received, when I started to understand Mary Magdalene and I started to realize her as the beloved companion of Jesus and also the you know, even having the archetype of prostitute laid on her, there was something in that that was medicine for my soul of like, oh, even me with the seven demons, I can be the beloved. Exactly. I can be. Yes, yes. exactly. And it's, um, it's, it's not wrong, but they didn't do her justice because they never acknowledged that she was, they acknowledged that she turned her life around and became a, an ardent follower of Christ, but they never acknowledged the partnership. That was right. that was the mistake. At least that's what my community was shown over the years with our prayer and our and our insistence. And I I tried to give this whole thing back to God and he wouldn't take it. So I had to go through with it. I was writing down 
a street in Tennessee and I was thinking, as I always, you know, when you're driving a car, you're always thinking about other stuff. Lord, what am I supposed to do with this stuff? And this truck came by and it said, aver it. It was Averitt, A-V-E-R-I-T-T, but it said, aver it. And I thought, okay, aver it means to say it out loud. That's all it means, to say it out loud as truth. And so I said, okay, I get the message. I'm not, I mean, that was total synchronicity that that truck just happened to go by just as I was asking this question. I have a synchronicity story I want to share with you. When I was 13, right when that darkness kind of descended in my life, I was had just had a really horrible thing happen to me. And so I needed to switch schools. And we had this new route that my mom would take me to go to this other school. And I was had three months left of finishing the eighth grade. And we drove by this church every day and they had one of those boards outside with those little exchangeable letters and they had different messages. And sometimes it was like Sunday brunch at 11 or whatever it is. And this one day I was feeling very, very down and lost. And I looked to this church and it said, to the Laurens of the world, God loves you. Oh my gosh, isn't that beautiful? What a special, special, that's just so special. I love it. It's perfect. Well, I, I had uh, similar experiences often in Nashville. I, I had they had that same reader board out in front of the church I had to go to to get to Vanderbilt. And it said, every day is Sunday, and they spelled it S-O-N. Mm-hmm. And I kept getting that all over Nashville. I, even in the Catholic Church, it was, it was so obvious that it was all about the sons and not the daughters. And I got so mm-hmm. upset about that. Because I have both. I have daughters and sons, and I need them all to feel acknowledged and praised and special. So that was, but one day I remember saying, Lord, how did, how did we lose this? And I looked up at a, there was a billboard advertising a new um, subdivision somewhere, and it said Chapel Homes. And I thought, well, yeah, we turned it into a monolithic institution instead of just worshiping in our homes with, you know, small groups of people, like-minded Christian people, which is how it started. And, and there's a movement of people who loved Jesus and wanted to share their stories. So let's talk about those people that loved Jesus, you know, back in the day. What do you think the Christianity back in the day was like before it became adopted by Rome? Well, I think it was just as I just described. I think it was people who gathered in his name and told stories and broke their bread together. And I don't think they... I don't think they had rituals as such until they started making it, I don't know, one one bishop, one prayer, one, you know, making it all unified. I think this reminds me, I have to, I have to bring this up and I'll, I guess I'll do it now. I have this wonderful friend who is a Canadian. She was Romanian at birth and her parents fled from there during the repressions, I guess, by communist leaders and such. Anyway, they were Jewish. They fled to Israel first and then to Canada. And so she went to school in Canada, became an amazing artist. And about 15 or 20 years ago, she switched from flat art painting and things to mosaics. And she's made fabulous series about Judas and about Esther from the Old Testament. And then somehow, maybe six or eight years ago, she had this calling to do a series of Mary Magdalene. And it's opening up this week in Vancouver in a museum, seven panels with the story of Mary Magdalene. I use them for my um, stations of the rosary when I do the 
Magdalene Rosary. I envision her picture. She loaned me, uh, well, she sent me a folder with her pictures about five years ago and came down to visit me and showed them to me. And I, I wanted to kneel when I saw mm -hmm. these pictures. They are fabulous. And I will uh, tell you, her name is Lillian Bracca with one L. You can go to her website, and she if you write Lillian Bracca, B-R-O-C-A, and then Magdalene Series or something like that, you can come at it on from the Internet. The website has these panels of Mary Magdalene, starting with the Sacred Union, which is the embrace of the beloveds, and then the anointing scene, the washing of feet, where Jesus is washing her feet because she's one of the disciples, one of his beloved disciples, and then... There's one where she's with the mother of Jesus at the foot of the cross. There's, um, oh, there's when she comes to tell the apostles, St. Peter with his arms across his chest saying, can't be true, it's not what we teach, <laughs> which is exactly what St. Peter always says. And then, and then the final one, it's from the book of Revelation where it's time for the nuptials of the lamb. And the bride is the community dressed as a bride I had to write the introduction for this, and it's it's pretty special because Carl Jung even tells us that it's impossible to imagine Jesus embracing a building full of people. When he embraces the bride, it has to be the community represented by one woman, and that woman is Mary Magdalene. And even in the early church, they, they uh, established that she represented the ecclesia, which is the community. So that's the story there. And anyway, these... these um, panels are well worth a visit. I, I would put it on my bucket list and, and get cool. up to Vancouver. It's going until August 15th, so it gives us time to muster a few little tours up there to go and see the fabulous mosaics. They're six feet tall, wow. and she had to cut each shard to match, you know, to put them in the right places, and wow, it's incredible. just incredible work. And devotion. And it's, it's amazing. She's got, they're huge, and they're all this labor, she went through the pandemic, she went through cancer herself and had to go through chemotherapy and all the rest of it. And, and she somehow still managed to finish them. There's something so beautiful about the devotion that women have had throughout the ages to the feminine aspect of God, you know, the feminine, the, the Sophia. It's something that, I mean, we've heard about the miracles all over the world and the miracles are living still in all of us. And there's two questions I have for you. One, just to put into historical text, uh, context for our listeners, you know, when Mary was married to, to Christ and was teaching with him and sharing in that secret knowledge with him, that was really hard for the disciples to believe and acknowledge because the patriarchal system had already been in place very strongly. And so... I want to put that into context. And then I want to ask, what do you think the value of Mary Magdalene being recognized as the bride, the sacred bride? What value does that have not only for people who come from descendants or ancestors of, of, Christian, of Christian descent, what about people all over the world? How does it, how does it influence? It allows us to image the divine as a divine partnership. And ultimately, the whole idea of incarnation is actually the marriage of flesh and divinity. And it's an image of God in us, which is also an important part of this story, is that, that 
God isn't out there somewhere. God is imminent in and with and through people. So when when someone's crying, God can't reach down and wipe tears away. God doesn't have a handkerchief, but you do and I do. So we're the hands and feet of God. We used to call it spirit-filled. And we used to count on the Holy Spirit to acknowledge, you know, to enlighten and, and guide and, and sustain us in, in every aspect of our lives. But we're not taught that anymore. We sing songs and we do things in ritual, and then we go home and forget it for six days, which is why you were so upset at us as a 13-year-old with people who could be in church on one day and then be bullying other people on other days. And I just, I heard somewhere that, that, um, that Mr. Putin in Russia thinks he's try, his war is to restore Christian values to Ukraine. And I thought, well, that's a funny way to go about it. If you're going to violate every rule about honoring and, and loving humanity in any shape and form, this is really a strange thing to do. Well, there's a, there's a disconnect between what we're taught and what we're to be. And the whole idea is to, to be Christ in us, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so, but, the, but that marriage, the sacred marriage, is actually the marriage of heart and head as well. It's on so many different levels. You know, it's not just two people, but it's the whole masculine and feminine energies that are then connected in a, in a partnership mode instead of being separated. One of the, one of the things I wanted to mention too is the symbol um, Jesus. Oh, that we didn't talk about the gematria at all, but the number of codes prove that Mary Magdalene is associated with the goddesses of love and fertility from the ancient world. Her number is 153, the Magdalene in Greek. And that's written up in one of my books. I think uh, the best place in would be Magdalene's Lost Legacy, that book that I wrote. But But it's absolute proof that they coined her title so that she would reflect this 153, would reflect the goddess of love and fertility. Well, Jesus' sacred number is eight. It's actually the way they spell Jesus in the Old Te- in the New Testament, I-H-S-O-U-S. It's Jesus. Yeshua in Hebrew is pronounced differently, but they spelled it this way on purpose because they wanted it to add up to three eights. And the early church fathers called Jesus the fullness of eight. Why? Because it's the day after the seventh day, the end of the week. He's the dawn of the new era. And it's the epitome of eight, three eights in a row, is the epitome of eight, dawn of the new age. And what age are we talking about? Pisces. And what is the symbol for Pisces? It's two fishes going in opposite directions, right? It's Mm -hmm. the yin-yang of the Christian dispensation, if you will, the new millennium of, of that period was this yin-yang of the fishes. If you take eight, which is the number for Jesus, and the 153 and multiply them together, the uh, code, the number, the value is 1224, 1224. And that's this value for the word fishes in Greek. Mm -hmm. So it all interplays in the scripture with these sacred numbers. And not everyone is tuned to that, but if, but if they are, if they're interested in the numbers, the book I wrote about Magdalene's Lost Legacy is where I explained all that. But it's, it's clear that they are partners, and they are the mm-hmm. partners, Lord and Lady of the Fishes. They are the archetypal god and goddess for this age of the fishes, mm-hmm. only she was shoved aside. So we missed our calling. We've had this San Andreas fault, if you will, the whole time. 
because we didn't honor the feminine as partner. We had a mother and a, a, a celibate mother and a celibate son, if you will. Virgin mother, celibate son, but but that's not the model for life. It's a beautiful model, but it's not it's not complete. It's a different, it's a there's a different thing with a partnership. And that's the flesh and divinity of, of um, Christ and Magdalene. Do you think that this distortion of this it, it, well, what's interesting about it is there's so much mysticism, like obviously with the sacred numbers and you can go down these rabbit holes and you can find this truth and you can see these synchronicities. But then there's this reality of this very oppressive history of the Christian church that has done things in the name of Jesus that are atrocious. Some of them are just, yeah, absolutely. And some so, of it continues. Yeah, They're still going exactly. like this. Exactly. And so you're like, okay, so this these teachers came and, and do you do you see Mary Magdalene and Yeshua as avatars of a higher consciousness, like like di- awakened, enlightened beings that came to teach a revolutionary way? Yes, absolutely. I believe they're they're the guides, if you will. Yeah, they are the avatar. In fact, the the uh, the word Curie, I don't know if you remember this from your Catholic background, but Curie means Lord, and he's he's the Curie of the age, this new age dawning, and she's the, she's the bride, and together they, but yeah, the the masculine by itself is distorted. He was stripped of his feminine partner, right, and that's and therefore that's the tragedy. And people ask me if I'm angry. No, I'm not angry. It's a tragedy. Look what it's done to the planet. And we're seeing it play out now in Europe with this horrible war from somebody who's who's just totally into power without any mitigating compassion. Mm-hmm. So And as somebody who's clearly been touched by the power of these two avatars and the grace and the the, the love, how do you balance what people think Christianity is versus your embodiment of it. How do you reconcile the difference? Well, I'm not sure I do. I just live one one day at a time. Mm-hmm. And right now, because my whole focus is trying to keep my husband comfortable and happy when he's so miserable, I don't, I don't know that I even think on those terms anymore. I just try to muddle through. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not, I don't have what I think are high thoughts very often. I pray a lot, but it's, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just, I don't want to say it's a dark night of the soul because I have total trust. And when I see things around me, I say, well, I know God ultimately has a plan. And so we just have to watch and wait and see how it all unfolds because we can't fix it. I'm mm-hmm. just, I guess I'm, I'm past the stage of thinking I can fix anything or mm-hmm. make a difference. I just, um I, I left, let my things out there with wings and let them go where they want. I, I think the work that you've pioneered, Margaret, the journey that you've been on has created a pathway in the you know, collective consciousness for more of us to follow and understand. So I am so moved by your humility of just being the woman that you are on earth. You know, the woman with your husband, with your children. Do you have grandchildren? I do, 11. 11. 
11 grandchildren. Two of them are adopted from China. Oh. Nine starboard grandchildren and then two other starboard grandchildren are Chinese. They're precious little girls. Well, I want to acknowledge the woman in you. You know, obviously there's the teacher in you and the the incredible one that's been guided for all this knowledge. And that's the one that maybe people have noticed. But right now I want to notice the beautiful woman that you are and how incredibly more than enough that is and what your life has represented. And I'm touched by, again, I'll say it again, I'm touched by your humility and the authentic compassion in which I can hear in your voice and the the work that you've done to to be. Now, what, what I was going to say kind of could be judgmental of other people. And so I don't want to sound judgmental of other people, but I do notice a distinct difference in you and the way you embody Christian principles than other places I've seen. And I, I appreciate that. Well, thank you. I'm, I, I'm, I'm touched by your response to my presence and my work. So that's wonderful. I had a couple other stories I would love to tell, but I can't tell them yes, all. Yes, please. But the, the, one of the first talks I ever gave was at a convention down in San Francisco, and it was in a had to do with fashion for some reason. It must. It was a big building, but it had all different kinds of fashions. And they put me in the section that was reserved for the brides, and they had all these dress bridal dresses and stuff. I think it was an accident, but maybe not. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> you had to walk past all these windows that, that showed pictures of um, boutiques where they had bridal gowns. And when we got in there, someone after my talk, I said, I think. My work is a bridge for people to be able to cross from the age of Pisces into the new age and have a, a different view of Christianity. If we can heal the wounds of Christianity before we go and bring a new view of, of, the, of life and love and all these things in partnership, masculine and feminine, by bringing Jesus and Magdalene together, we, we can cross that bridge. And she said, well, did this woman raised her hand. She said, did you ever understand that you were a bridge for some of us who've left Christianity behind to come back and, and regroup and, and do it, a, you know, a different way? She, she was really very sweet about saying that, that maybe my work would help people come back. And that reminds me, too, of the time I was invited to speak for Wiccans down in, mm. in uh, say, no, wait a minute. New Orleans. It was New Orleans and it was Halloween and they were having a convention and they didn't tell me they were Wiccans until I got there. And some of them were wearing big hats and doing different things. And they came up afterwards. She said, they said, you finally given us stuff. We can come back to our parents and tell them they were, a lot of them were born Catholic and they had gone off to be Wiccans because it hadn't fed them to be Catholics anymore. And so apparently my work was enabling them to see how they could go back and talk to their parents about Christianity, which was, yeah. you know, at least that's that helps to heal relationships when you can actually. Right. It heals the ancestry. Like I, through the reclamation of being able to say the rosary, I've connected more with my grandmother and my great-grandmother and my heritage evolving it as I go because I have new understanding of my spiritual orientation that does not disclude other other spiritual paths. It's all encompassing of spiritual, all of everybody's spiritual path. It's encompassing of nature. It's encompassing of the feminine. Uh-huh. Wonderful. 
So, well, blessings on your journey. I know you're having a, a unique one. Everyone <laughs> is special and unique, but your stories are remarkable too. So that's what I keep telling Someone will write to me and occasionally and say, well, how would you interpret this? And I say, well, that doesn't really matter. What really matters is how you interpret this because it's your it's your synchronicity and your journey and your dream that you have to relate to and not try to get someone else to interpret it for you. Mm. So, What guidance would you give a woman listening to this that has been deeply wounded by Christianity? That's hard. I'm, I'm not sure what to tell them. I, I think forgiveness is helpful and, and learning to trust that where they are is where they're supposed to be and that God honors their pain and their suffering and that there's um, healing in that, especially by being true to their own path. I guess that's all you can say. Show us the way of the heart. And that was the way that Christ came to show us, and especially with Magdalene at his side. I see them, I picture them holding hands in the garden after supper, you know, that kind of thing. And that's, there's healing in not abandoning the masculine. See, that's the thing that worries me most is that so many females now have been wounded not just by the church, but by men and the, mm-hmm. and the men's preferences, male preferences. Well, even from birth, you know, everybody thought their first child was going to be a son, and it's not always true. So now what? You know, I think you just you just have to be true to the to acknowledging your own pain, and then try to be as compassionate toward others and less judgmental. The church, I I feel like they don't even know how much pain they are in. They're mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well. It's hard to say, but every everyone, you have to let God be the judge. I remember someone calling and I was talking on a radio show one day and a Protestant minister called in and he said, you know, you're going to hell, don't you? And I said, well, I certainly am glad that God is my judge and not you. <laughs> Good answer. He had to hang up. He had to hang up because obviously, anyway. But, but don't judge yourself too harshly either. Wherever you are, God is there. God is already there with you in that moment. That's, that's what you have to cling to and know. And the church has made horrible mistakes, and sometimes they're not even aware of them. They think they're doing the right thing. I, you know, in the beginning, I think they lost Magdalene because they were trying so hard to save her. If you read the little story in the book I wrote called The Woman with the Alabaster Jar, it starts off with a little novella at the beginning. And the woman, Mary Magdalene's sitting on a stone bench, and Joseph comes to her and he says, I need to, I need you to um, come with me. And she says, you know, Joseph, I can't even go anywhere. I just, I'm done. I can't, I can't even contemplate going anywhere. And he said, but I promised him I'd keep you safe. And so you have to come with me. And so she gets up and goes out with Joseph. I gave this story uh, to a priest, and he read it, and he said, you know, this could heal the church. And I said, oh, I hope, I hope you're right. And he said, but I, he said, I had to read the, I had to, after I read about five or six pages, he said, I, I thought you were talking about Mary, uh, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, her husband. He said, I had to go back and read the whole thing again, starting at the beginning. And I said, well, I hope everyone will do that. I was talking about Mary Magdalene and Joseph of Arimathea, and the story is set after the crucifixion. 
Joseph of Arimathea comes and he is the one who's credited in legend with having rescued Mary Magdalene and taken her away. And eventually they end up in France. But originally they fled into Egypt. I didn't know that they originally fled to Egypt. What's the journey that they take? Well, it's all, of course, it's mythological. We're not sure because we don't have any, we don't even have a wedding certificate. We don't have anything. We just have these hints and stories and legends. And then, of course, in the Gospels, we have that sacred number of the title of Mary Magdalene, which absolutely proves that that title was coined to associate her with the goddess of love and fertility, which makes her the goddess in the gospel. There's this awakening that's taken place with women, definitely in my generation. And I, again, I'm crediting women in your generation where we are definitely reclaiming that, what, what, what can I call it? Like a array of consciousness that connects us with the Magdalens, the voice of the Magdalene, that lineage of devotion to the goddess, whether that you call that a priestess or whatever. I, there's a lot of that in this generation. What do you, what do you have to say or share about that? Well, I'm always amazed when young people come to me and they're so enthused and, and carrying on the work. Do you know Libby Schrader, Elizabeth yeah. Schrader? Oh, well, you need to have a talk with her sometime too. She's gone on, she's at Duke now getting a PhD and she gives talks about Magdalene at different conferences and writes papers and all kinds of wonderful work that she's doing. I'll, I'll, put, I'll send you a link of her stuff too so you can okay. have her. She's just, um, they've just found out that the early church fathers never said that Mary Magdalene was from Magdala. So they're acknowledging that the, the Magdalene is a title, not a hometown which is huge for my work because that's what I intuited way back. I opened scripture one day. I said, Lord, what do you have for me today? And I opened scripture to Micah chapter four. And it said, to you, O Magdalator, the watchtower of the flock, through you dominion will be restored to the daughter of Zion. Why are you crying? Wow. Have you no king? Has your counselor perished that you cry aloud like a woman in labor? Go now and dwell in the open fields. From there you shall be rescued. Nations will defile you and call you unclean. It's all from the book of Micah. It's a prophecy 700 years old at the time of Christ. And I think that's where her title came from because this four lines sum up exactly who she was. She was crying at the tomb and the guy says, why are you crying? It's an exact quote from the book of Micah where he prophesies that to to her, through her, dominion will be restored to the daughter of Zion. It's an amazing quote. Micah chapter 4, verses um, 8 to 12. So anyway, when I that's in my alabaster jar. I actually quote it in there if you want to look that up again. But it's um, it was the source of her title. It's not a hometown. She was called the Watchtower of the Flock, and it's a place name in a, a hill outside the town of Bethlehem where the shepherds used to watch their sheep. And it was the watchtower of the flock, right? And Jesus is the good shepherd. So it's like another symbiosis, if you will, of the sacred connection between Christ and Magdalene. So anyway, I think that's the source of her title. Certainly not the town up on the shores of Galilee. That town was called Tariachia in her day. <laughs> that's how silly all of this is, you know. It's, it's just one, one little piece of, liter- of research that people ignored. I asked Karen King one time why they call her Mary of Magdala, and she says, "Oh, it's it's the standard, the standard story, or the standard application, or whatever." 
it's tradition. They don't even check. They just keep saying it. So anyway, Lugi Schrader's work is going to set them straight. They did not call her that in the first century. <laughs> you know what I'm present to? What a time we're living in where we can have this conversation without fear of death. Isn't that something? Well, that reminds me, someone asked me about my career and I said, well, I used to be Cinderella and now I'm Joan of Arc. <laughs> but I don't get I don't get burned at the stake, luckily. Hallelujah for that too. Well, you know, people look at my stuff and they say, can't be true, it's not what we teach. Right. But you know what? It should be. They should go back and reread it and then they'll see that it is what they should be teaching. You are an amazing woman, Margaret. Thank you. <laughs> for, for our last question, we ask all our guests this. We ask our guests to ask the great mother to speak through them as a message for all of us. But I, I specifically, due to your connection with Mary Magdalene, wanted to ask you if you could be a vessel in this moment and tune into your heart, where your connection with Mary Magdalene lives. What do you feel she would have you speak in this moment to all of us? Be not afraid. God is with you. God is within you. God is faithful. And so it is. Thank you, Margaret. For everybody listening, we will put links to Margaret's books for you to resource and read. She has done incredible work. I highly encourage you to dive in deeper and get your fill of Margaret Starbird. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step in your journey right now, whether you're feeling stuck or whether you're feeling like you're wanting to expand and spread your wings, Circle Initiation, our signature program, begins April 11th. It is so much more than a facilitator training. It is a complete transformation into feminine embodiment and trusting in our feminine wisdom and gifts. It's a powerful journey and you're invited to join us. Go to globalsisterhood.org slash circle dash initiation to sign up. And as always, we're so grateful for you. Thank you so much for listening. We are on this journey and we have big plans coming up. We will be taking a short break coming fairly soon. We will let you know about that. If you are enjoying this journey with us, please go ahead and leave us a review. We are so honored and grateful to be building this community and for all of us to be learning from these epic teachers together.